Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Thursday, April 29th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. How an AI, after failing for a decade, finally won the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. The Olympics are going virtual, but not how you're probably thinking. And remembering Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. When the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament went virtual this year, I'm not sure the competitors thought that would mean that the winner would also be virtual. For the first time, the tournament was won not by a flesh-and-blood human, but by a computer program. Specifically, an AI called Dr. Phil, that's F-I-L-L, which was created by Matt Ginsberg, an astrophysicist-cum-computer-scientist who is also a stunt pilot, bridge player, novelist, and magician, according to Slate. Despite being apparently so accomplished in so many different fields, Ginsberg reports that he has always been rotten at crossword puzzles, so ten years ago he started building an algorithm that could complete them better than even the most talented humans. While most top contestants at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, or ACPT, achieve perfect accuracy, Dr. Phil actually finished with three errors. But it was so much faster than the humans that it outscored all of them because competitors are ranked using a formula that balances speed and accuracy. And just for some comparison here, those top human competitors can typically solve a particularly gnarly New York Times puzzle in under three minutes. This was not Dr. Phil's first time competing in the ACPT. Its first time there was in 2012, when it finished in 141st place. Not the worst, but amusing and threatening enough that people made I beat Dr. Phil buttons to hand out to anyone who placed above it. Dr. Phil kept attending ACPT, getting better all the time, and achieving its best result in 2017 when it placed 11th. How did it jump to an impenetrable first place this year? With a little help from the head of the Berkeley Natural Language Processing Group, Dan Klein, and his students. They had been working on a crossword solver of their own and reached out to Ginsburg earlier this year, quoting Slate. Ginsburg's Dr. Phil was of an earlier era, an example of what is sometimes called good old-fashioned AI, reliant on human understandable logic and search, like how Deep Blue searched and ranked millions of chess positions per second in the 1990s. The Berkeley system, on the other hand, was newfangled, an example of a neural network, the less understandable black box machine learning systems so prevalent today, like DeepMind's AlphaGo system that conquered the ancient Chinese game Go. The original Dr. Phil is very good at searching lightning fast through countless possible placements of words in a grid. It assigns each possibility a probability of being correct and weighs those probabilities across the puzzle, settling on what it sees as the most promising solution. The Berkeley crossword solver, meanwhile, is very good at understanding clues. Its neural network was trained on 6 million clues and answers. Its network learned what Klein calls the generalizations and abstractions that allow a human or a machine to understand language. Our knowledge of language is based on a massive amount of talking and hearing people talk and things we've read, Klein said. All this language we use and that we've been exposed to, it leaves a trace. And these AI systems are really no different. The Berkeley program is like someone who's been raised not by wolves, but by sentient crossword puzzles. It learns by playing crosswords, and this system has played a lot of crosswords, Klein said, laughing. People have played fewer crosswords, but have lived in the world. End quote. 
Just a few weeks before this year's tournament, Ginsberg teamed up with Klein and his crew to mash their systems together. In addition to the new Frankenstein program, which started working just in the nick of time, Ginsberg also ran it on a custom-built 64-core processor computer with two GPUs, something he wasn't able to do when he had to travel to the tournament when it just played on a laptop. So yet another benefit of the competition going virtual. And, as we know, it worked. Dr. Phil outscored the next highest competitor, Eric Agard, by just 15 points. Though, because the tournament works by having the top three scorers then compete in a championship round, the ultimate winner ended up being Tyler Hinman, who completed the puzzle in three minutes. Now, Dr. Phil and its creators were not eligible for the grand prize of $3,000, but Dr. Phil did play the championship round just for fun and solved it without errors in just 49 seconds. Now, on the computer science side of things, Ginsburg views Dr. Phil as a productive demonstration of the power of melding the more old-fashioned style of AI with newer machine learning. He said, quote, those two groups have historically not played well together. They don't like each other. Everybody has this huge bias that they're going to use one approach and not the other, and it's been bad. As a scientist, I'm incredibly excited to see these two communities finally working together to solve problems that were too hard for them individually." End quote. But how do hardcore competitive puzzlers feel about it? Well, I think those I beat Dr. Phil buttons from 2012 are fairly telling. So too are the reported cheers in the conference hall anytime the AI makes a mistake. And Slate reports that this year the chat room was filled with boos when it was announced Dr. Phil came in first. Amy Rinaldo, co-editor of Crosswords with Friends, told Slate, quote, On a personal level, I find the Dr. Phil project annoying. Nobody wants a machine to beat them at something they're quite good at. But I somewhat grudgingly recognize the sci-tech importance of Matt Ginsburg's project, end quote. And that is kind of what it comes down to. As Jonathan Schaefer, who built an AI that solved checkers, put it, quote, Like we've seen with other games and puzzles, beating humans at crossword puzzles is a combination of technology and ingenuity. And like we've seen for other domains, there's no easy answer. There's no substitute for hard work and patience, end quote. It's a different kind of hard work and patience and skill than the realm it's competing in, but it's still an incredibly impressive feat that ultimately has a real human behind it. And this isn't the end. Klein and Ginsberg and their peers will continue tweaking Dr. Phil, and the people who write crosswords, especially tournament-level ones, will continue trying to make them harder, both to challenge the AIs and the super-competitive humans. I mean, it took nearly 10 years for Dr. Phil to beat the humans, so I don't think a human usurping its title again is completely beyond the realm of possibility. Alright, so this was announced last week, but I somehow completely missed it, and it seems pretty huge, so I'm sharing it in case anyone else missed it as well. So while the Olympic Games in Tokyo are still going ahead in person, the International Olympic Committee announced that they will be launching a separate Olympic virtual series. This is not replacing this year's event or any other Olympic Games, but rather an additional initiative that will have the IOC exploring esports and virtual sports. As of now, the included virtual sports are baseball, cycling, rowing, sailing, and motorsport. It's all set to run May 13th to June 23rd, with the hopes of building up excitement for the physical Olympic Games in Tokyo. Quoting The Guardian, 
A well-placed source told The Guardian that while medals would not be awarded for now, the possibility of medal events in the future for physical, virtual sport such as online rowing and cycling should not be ruled out. But the source insisted there would never be gold medals for Overwatch or League of Legends. In a statement, the IOC said the Olympic Virtual Series would mobilize virtual sport, esports, and gaming enthusiasts all around the world in order to reach new Olympic audiences, while also encouraging the development of physical and non-physical forms of sports in line with the recommendations of the IOC's Olympic Agenda 2020 plus 5, end quote. The Olympic Virtual Series is partnering with both international sports federations like the World Baseball Softball Confederation and gaming publishers like Konami and Gran Turismo. The IOC is leaning on those organizations, many of whom have existing infrastructure for hosting competitions, and I imagine a lot of them will be pulling primarily from their existing relationships with esports competitors to fill out this first roster. It does seem like this is mostly a bit of a PR thing to drum up interest in the delayed 2020 games, but depending how it goes, it could get more formalized in the future, which in some ways would mark one of the most massive changes to the Olympics in a very long time. Michael Collins, who piloted the Apollo 11 command module that took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the surface of the moon, passed away yesterday at the age of 90 due to complications with cancer. As we talk about space exploration so much on this show, and as Collins played such an instrumental role not just in the most famous American space mission of all time, but also in preserving the space program's history and inspiring people around the world, I thought it appropriate to take a moment today to honor him. A lot of people describe Collins as being the forgotten astronaut, or sometimes the loneliest man in history, as he stayed in the moon's orbit all alone for over 20 hours while Armstrong and Aldrin took humanity's first steps on the moon, even losing radio communication while he was on the far side of the moon. The New York Times' Jonathan Corum pointed out on Twitter that in taking photos of the lander touching down on the moon with the Earth in the background, Collins, quote, "...captured all of humanity in one photograph." except himself, end quote. And the New York Times, by the way, has a great interactive photo essay featuring some of the photos Collins took alongside transcripts of his conversations with Armstrong, Aldrin, and Mission Control while taking them, link in the show notes. While Collins admitted to the loneliness in his 1974 book, Carrying the Fire, writing at one point, quote, I am alone now, truly alone, and absolutely isolated from any known life, end quote. He didn't see that loneliness as a negative thing, however, but rather the experience of a lifetime. Quoting The Verge, He relived the feeling of utter loneliness as his Columbia module flew into the remote darkness of the moon's far side. I like the feeling, he wrote in his memoir. Outside my window, I can see stars, and that is all. Where I know the moon to be, there is simply a black void. He called his perch in the capsule his beautiful little domain in a 2019 interview with the New York Times, adding, It was all mine. I was the emperor, the captain of it, and it was quite commodious. I had warm coffee, even. End quote. He also emphasizes that top of his mind was making sure his fellow astronauts made it safely to the surface of the moon and back. Around his neck, he wore a packet listing out 18 different contingency plans in the event he needed to rescue them. 
And while many people do wonder how he must have felt to be the one left behind, getting to hear his colleagues take the first steps on the moon over the radio but being too high above them to see it, and even hearing President Nixon call to congratulate the other two. But Collins wasn't even originally scheduled to be on Apollo 11 at all. He was originally going to be on Apollo 8, the first mission to orbit the moon, a sort of recon mission for the landing. But he ended up having to undergo surgery for a herniated disc, and after a successful recovery, he was reassigned to the historic Apollo 11 mission. He never did make it to the moon's surface himself, though. In fact, he never went back to space. Even before embarking on that world-changing mission, Collins had decided that he was going to leave the space program, citing his desire to spend more time with his family. He went on to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, and later became the director for the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, where he oversaw the opening of its new, current building on the National Mall in 1976, helping ensure generations of children would get to learn about the space program and be inspired to perhaps embark on such an adventure themselves one day, or contribute to the work that makes such adventures possible. And on that note, I really like President Biden's take on Collins' contributions, which he released in a statement yesterday, quote, He may not have received equal glory, but he was an equal partner, reminding our nation about the importance of collaboration in service of great goals. From his vantage point high above the earth, he reminded us of the fragility of our own planet and called on us to care for it like the treasure it is, end quote. In addition to his Carrying the Fire memoir, Michael Collins wrote a number of other books, including his 1990 book Mission to Mars, which makes the case for refocusing the space program towards exploring Mars. He was a very gifted writer and remembered for his exceptional wits and good humor, so I'll leave you with a clip in his own words from an interview with PBS NewsHour's Miles O'Brien on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing in 2019. The moon was nothing compared to my view of home planet. It was it. It was the main chance. You know, I'd look out the window, and there it would be, a tiny little thing. You know, you could obscure it with your thumb, but every time you put it away somewhere, it'd pop out. It wanted you to look at it. It wanted to be seen. It was gorgeous. It was tiny, shiny, the blue of the oceans, the white of the clouds, little streak of rust color that we call continents, it just glowed. Having gone out 240,000 miles and seeing it gives me a much greater sense of fragility, a much greater urge to do something to protect that fragility as we go along. Well, from first moonwalk to commercial space flights, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin has announced their plans to sell tickets for seats on their new Shepard rockets. They say they'll release more information on May 5th, so coming up soon. The teaser video posted to the Twitter account doesn't include any info about the price or when it would occur just yet. New Shepard is a suborbital rocket, and paying customers would go up 340,000 feet to see some pretty incredible views of Earth and experience a few minutes of microgravity before returning back to Earth. So, yeah, commercial spaceflight is really happening. And in news that's equally bonkers, but in a less overwhelming and more delightful way, Jeff Goldblum is joining the upcoming season of a popular Dungeons & Dragons podcast— why? I have no idea. Because he wants to, I suppose. 
The podcast Dark Dice is one of those playthrough-style podcasts with a super high production value, and Goldblum will be playing elven sorcerer Balmer starting on May 12th. As for any other details, including why this is happening, don't ask, just bask in the wondrous orbit of Jeff Goldblum. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 